0: Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. A quick apology for the delay on this episode. We had some technical problems as we were switching the computers we were recording on, but hopefully it all worked well this time. This episode, we're going to track the family of Brunhild, who I can't pretend I haven't been waiting to talk about again. We'll discuss the tragic story of her daughter Ingund her pleading the Council of Childebert's nobles at Breslingen for support, and we'll discuss the beginning of her ruthless and systematic removal of rivals in Austrasia. It'll be bloody messy stuff, but mostly a lot of foreshadowing, in episode 54, Politics as Usual. Let's start with a quick update on Eastern Rome and Visigothic Spain. The first thing to note is the Roman intervention in Visigothic Spain. When King Athanagild had died in 567, there was a Roman enclave in southern Spain that had been conquered during the time of Justinian. After the king's death, the Visigothic elite had made a man named King, who had quickly named his brother Luvigild as his co-ruler. Luverguild was a capable and active king marching on almost yearly campaigns against the enemies that lay at the fringes of Visigothic rule. These were not only the Byzantines in the south, but also the Suebi in the northwest and the Basques in the north. Although Louvergilt, who became the sole king only two years into their joint reign after his brother died, fought aggressively to remove the Roman forces from Spain, he also exemplifies a somewhat mixed attitude towards the Romans that the Visigoths held. While capturing Roman strongholds in the south, he also copied Roman imperial styles of dress, coinage, and rule. Now, I could actually talk about Luvergild for hours because he is a deeply fascinating figure. There are really three things we need to know for our episode today. One. Upon his ascension to the throne, he had married Athanagild's widow, Boy Swinther, to strengthen his claim to the throne. Boy Swinther was the mother of Brunhild. Two, despite Luvigild's best efforts, the Romans still held immense influence and significant military power in Spain. And three, despite his successes and strength, Luvigild was still subject to the continuing curse of Visigothic rule. The Uneasy Succession. The Visigothic state at this point was a military aristocracy. It had several key differences to the Frankish realms, the most important being the legitimacy of its kings. Where the Merovingian family carved out an unquestionable association between kingship and the Merovingian name, the Visigothic kings had failed to do the same. This had made their state far less stable, leading to a series of civil wars and the power of the aristocracy rising sharply. In fact, in the Visigothic realm, kings were often chosen by the aristocracy, like Luvigild's brother Luva had been. This also meant that the power in the realm was more dispersed, and the centralization of authority that had happened in the hands of the early Merovingian kings was mostly nowhere to be seen in Spain. Where the nobility was engaged in a long, drawn-out struggle in the Frankish kingdoms to seize more power, in Spain, they had never not had that power. The other key difference to note is the religious division. The Visigothic royals still doggedly held on to their Aryan Christian beliefs causing serious division between them and their Ibero-Roman subjects. The continuing Roman and Nicene Christian influence in their state meant another major source of instability and division that was practically impossible to solve. King after King had tried to either bring peace between the two religious factions, or simply to crush the Nicene dissent. None had succeeded. The reason I bring up these two differences is Hermenegild. Hermenegild was one of the two sons of King Luvergild, and after his brother's death in 573, the king decided to associate both of his sons with the throne, fairly common practice in the period. This was an obvious attempt to stabilize the succession and cut away some of the influence of the powerful aristocracy. Both Hermenegild and his brother Ricard were crowned and given significant parts of the kingdom to govern under the authority of their father. Hermenegild, being the eldest, was made Duke of Toledo, traditional centre of Visigothic power in Spain. It seems Hermenegild was a fairly competent and uncontroversial heir, at least until trouble began in 578 when his father negotiated for him to marry Ingund, daughter of Brunhild. Visigothic royals and the Merovingians fiercely had a history of political marriages. Marrying the daughter of Brunhild was also yet another link back to the previous dynasty of Athanagild, so it was a good match. There were only two problems. First, Ingund was only 12 years old. Definitely a problem for us, though, unfortunately, less of a problem at the time. The other problem was that, even at 12 years old, Ingun was a staunch Nicene Christian. She arrived in Toledo to a warm welcome in 579. Apparently, she was initially welcomed by her grandmother, Queen Goy Swinther, who seems to have been happy to see her. She and her married that year and things were off to a good start. But conflict soon arose between the girl and her grandmother. Queen Goiswintha was determined that Ingun give up the Nicene Creed that her mother had converted to and be re baptized as an Arian. The princess absolutely refused to do this. In an incredibly impressive display of determination, this 12 year old girl who had been sent far from home to a strange new land and was surrounded by critics refused her powerful grandmother's orders she would not give up her faith now a quick trigger warning because what follows is deeply upsetting gregory records that queen goyswinther flew into a rage at her granddaughter's stubbornness quote she seized the girl by the hair and threw her to the ground. Then she kicked her until she was covered with blood, had her stripped naked, and ordered her to be thrown into the baptismal pool. End quote. Despite this horrific treatment, the young princess still refused to bend. In fact, he refused to even pretend to bend. Instead, he began working to convince her adult husband, Hermenegild, that his beliefs were wrong. And this appears to have begun to work, as Hermenegild was soon reassigned south out of his prestigious position at Toledo. Now, the exact causes for this decision are unknown. Once in the south, Hermenegild began to publicly break with his Aryan beliefs and with his father. He became friends with Leander of Seville, brother of the famous scholar Isidore of Seville, who, fun fact, his patron saint of the internet. Anyway, Leander added another voice to Ingun's, and soon Hermanigild began to bend. He first announced that he was crowning himself king at the end of 579, making him equal to his father and guaranteeing yet another civil war. He also officially broke with Arianism and endorsed the Nicene Creed in 582. Now, this was obviously a dangerous move, given his father's martial reputation and his stepmother's devout Arianism. But it was not entirely without cause. Many of the Visigothic nobility had already begun to convert, and Arianism's grip on the state was weakening. Also, the south had become a haven for Nicene Christians, thanks to the protection of the nearby Roman enclave. So hermenegild was making a bet but he could use the divisions in the realm to force his father's submission and carve out a place for himself. Plus, as we'll see in a bit, he seems to have been truly devout in his faith. Unfortunately for Hermenegild and Ingund, things did not work out well for their rebellion. Hermenegild asked the Romans for help. They were busy fighting a devastating war with Persia on the other side of the Mediterranean did not really have the resources to support him. What troops they could muster were bought off when Luvergild offered 30,000 gold pieces for them to withdraw their support from his rebellious son, which they promptly accepted. So Hermanigild then turned to his father's other major enemies, Swabians. Unfortunately, they were soon subdued by the king, and Hermanigild, out of allies, was defeated. His capital of Seville was taken by siege in 584, and he accepted peace after seeking sanctuary in a church in Cordoba. He was imprisoned, but Goy Swinther showed some of that Brunhild-esque ruthlessness and forced the issue of the rebellious prince when she sent an Arian bishop to offer him the Eucharist on Easter 585. When the rebel refused to take the Eucharist from a priest that he considered a heretic, His father ordered him executed. Well, that's all well and good, but what about Ingun, I hear you asking? Now a young woman, and with a newborn son in tow, Ingun fled to the Romans as her husband's rebellion fell apart. They, thankfully, refused to give her and her new son Athanagil to the Visigoths. They were soon moved out of Spain for their own safety, and to Carthage, North Africa they were basically prisoners here, which brings us back to Frankia. The Romans used Ingund and her young son as bargaining chips against the Visigoths and the Franks. Brunhild was determined to have her daughter and grandson return to her care, and placed an enormous amount of pressure on Childebert to make this happen. This was probably a large part of why Childebert agreed to attack the Lombards in Italy, though the campaign went nowhere. The issue of Ingund was also a big part of the council at Breslingen, where Brunhild stood in front of her son and the collected nobles of the realm and begged for their support for her efforts to free Ingund from the Romans. Unfortunately, they were not forthcoming, and she would ultimately fail, with Ingund dying in Carthage never to return home. Here is the important thing to note. Even as Childebert had reached his maturity, he and Brunhild still did not fully control the Australian court. While Childebert was distracted playing diplomatic games with Guntram, he could not break the power of the noble faction that had dominated his court since his crowning. And these games were for high stakes. Hildebert needed to be seen as strong to maintain his own power within his realm internally, and he needed to keep up pressure on Guntram to convince the senior king to maintain their alliance and not switch his allegiance back yet again to the Neustrians. We saw this with Bishop Theodore last week, and Gregory gives us plenty of other examples of these diplomatic games. So let's talk about just one, Childeric the Saxon. Childeric's story is a pretty typical one, and shows how Childebert kept his freedom and authority from Guntram by using small but significant acts of defiance, and by supporting allies in Guntram's lands. This time, the ally is, guess who? Gregory. Yes, once again, Gregory got himself involved in kingly politics when he took in Childeric the Saxon, Childeric had been condemned by Guntram after a quarrel with a man named Avius, which had ended with Avius taking a spear through the stomach and Childeric fleeing to sanctuary with Gregory and the church in Tours. In his rush to safety, he had left his wife behind, and Guntram soon moved to punish the man by preventing her from joining her husband in Tours until he had submitted himself to Guntram and gained the king's forgiveness. Childeric seems wary of trying this, though, and he refused to leave Tours, and so a stalemate ensued. Gregory clearly felt that this punishment was harsh and appealed to Guntram in a series of messages to end his prohibition and allow the woman to see her husband. Eventually, Guntram relented and allowed Childeric and his wife to reunite and live together on the other side of the Loire from Tours. But he did this on a single condition, that Childeric not use this as an opportunity to go over to Childebert. So, reunited with his wife after a long absence, Childeric immediately went over to Childebert. The young king made him a duke and sent him to govern the cities that lay on the other side of the Garonne in southwestern Gaul. This was the exact area that had been Gunderwald's base of support, and Guntram had just spent a lot of effort having the rebellious clergy and noblemen either removed or forced to submit to him once again. This shows us how Childebert subtly undermined Guntram. He never openly broke the alliance that they had made, but he needed to keep Guntram vulnerable enough to need him, So he gave shelter to his disaffected nobles, he gave support to men like Gregory who were friends with Guntram but had previously aligned with the Austrasian royals, and he sent men like Theodore and Childeric into rebellious areas that lay at the edges of Guntram's authority in order to prevent the king from consolidating his hold on the south. While Childebert was busy playing these important games, it was left largely to his mother. To consolidate power at home, as king, Wilbert had to be at least somewhat above the squabbles of his nobles and courtiers. Plus, he was still young, and could not jeopardize the power and the newfound freedom he had found by opposing the powerful faction of nobles and court, and maybe forcing them to do something drastic. But Brunhild, had no such restraints, and she had learned her lesson from the death of Sigebert. If something unexpected happened, she wanted full control of Austrasia so that she could protect herself and her family from danger. Since using the rebellion of Meravec to pry her way back into her son's court, Brunhild had largely played a defensive game. She had sought to protect those still loyal to her and her late husband, and limit the power of the nobles who had taken her son away from her. Now that Childebert was older and beginning to govern for himself, she could have a little bit more leeway, protected from the most dire retributions of her actions by his authority. And boy, was she going to use all of that leeway. That leads us to her first step, a man named Wanderlin. Wanderlin was Childebert's tutor. I know, doesn't sound like a powerful position but really think about how this would work. Childebert was still young, and Wanderlin was in charge of his day-to-day education. That meant that he could dictate a lot of what the king did in his day, and who he saw. That gave Wanderlin immense agenda-setting powers. Want to see the young king and plead your case? You have to get through Wanderlin first. Also. Don't forget that Wanderland was in charge of what Childebert was taught. This meant that he could subtly influence the king through his lessons in order to make him see things his way. Or he could simply have kept Childebert's attention on war and martial combat, leaving him unprepared for things like managing a treasury, and thus making him easier to manipulate down the road. There was immense power in being the teacher of the king, and Brunhild knew it. Now, as Queen Mother, Brunhild was one of the few people who might have been able to bypass Wondelin's authority and speak directly to the king. Even she would have been limited by the tutor. Plus, remember, Wondelin had been appointed by the nobles who had taken Childebert from Brunhild, and would likely have been working to further their interests by limiting her access to her own son. So when Wanderlin unexpectedly died, Brunhild moved quickly to cut off this source of power in the court. She announced she would take charge of her son's education and work to prevent another appointment being made. This was probably a little hard to argue with, as she was his mother, and he was already most of the way through his education. She managed to hold firm on this, and no new tutor was ever appointed giving her free access to her son, and greatly increasing her power at court in one fell swoop. Her opponents likely underestimated this move, thinking that since it didn't change much practical things in the kingdom, that it probably wouldn't come back to haunt them. On this, they would be sorely mistaken. The death of Wandelin, while not dramatic, marks the beginning of Brunhild's return to power. His position is the first that she brushes aside in her quest to gain control of her son's factional and hostile court. Along with the position, he managed to regain all of the wealth that Wondolin had, quote, held from the state, end quote, which suggests that he was probably using his position to personally profit and interfere in business that was not strictly his domain like the treasury. Grunhild put all of this wealth back into the treasury, showing her determination to build her power along with her son, rather than independent of him. Gregory only gives the event a couple of sentences in his histories, but it is much more significant than that. By taking control of the king's education, he had proved that she was now ready to make moves, however limited in the short term and she would just keep on pushing from here. Her position bolstered, her actions would only become more aggressive from here, as one by one, she would remove her rivals and consolidate power, until she was unchallenged. Now, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the quick tangent into Visigothic politics. It won't just be relevant for this episode. Next episode, We'll discuss Guntram's failed invasion of Visigothic Septimania, and Gregory's analysis of the failures of the Frankish armies of his period. We'll also check in with Brunhild's counterpart Fredegund as she tries to assassinate a king. See you then.